0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Two percent, two percent, two percent.
0: The two percent's right over here.
1: Oh, hey, Jenna. I didn't know you shopped here.
0: Uh, yeah, anything to support local food. Know what I mean?
1: I definitely do. Though that's not the only thing you do in the name of Good Eats, obviously.
0: Well, true. I also host Eating Matters every Wednesday at 5 p.m. where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. Be sure to tune in. All right, got to get the plug in there. I get it. Yep, I'm hashtag shameless.
1: You know what else you can do to support the local food community, right?
0: Well, yeah. Make a donation to Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station.
1: That's right, and i got to call you out on the whole local thing. What do you mean? Well, The Farm Report, A Taste of the Past, Japan Eats. Those are shows that take you around the country and the world.
0: I'll give you that. So how can listeners give their support?
1: It's pretty easy. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the big red heart in the top right corner. It's pretty easy from there.
0: Thanks. Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center. Offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management. From culinary technology to food writing. From cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
1: Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Please take a moment to like the show on iTunes if you're so inclined, and feel free to reach out to me. If you have any questions, you can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on social media at thefoodballer. Today is episode number 36 of Feast Your Ears, and I am joined by phone uh, by a man that I would describe as probably the hardest working man in food in New York City. Um, I had the pleasure to first meet Klaus Meyer when he came to New York uh, to get started on his vast number of projects that he's doing here. Um, He is a chef, entrepreneur, tastemaker, author, TV host, one of the creators of what we now describe as New Nordic Cuisine, uh, one of the founders of Noma in Copenhagen, often regarded as the best restaurant in the world. And Klaus moved to New York last year with his family and is working on a number of projects here. Uh, that will add to our city in ways that I don't think we even quite realize yet. Um, inside of Grand Central Station, he's already opened Agerne, a fine dining restaurant, along with a hot dog stand. Soon, next week, that will be followed by the Great Northern Food Hall, which is taking over part of Vanderbilt Hall, for those of you that are familiar with Grand Central Station. And Meyer's Bakery is taking New York by storm, baking Scandinavian specialties, among them brown bread, which I know is beloved by Danish expats. I have a few who used to work for me who were so excited when he finally brought their beloved uh, Scandinavian bread here. He's also opening a commissary in Queens to supply the Grand Central projects and a restaurant and cooking school in Brownsville, Brooklyn. Uh, That is a lot of stuff, and it barely covers the project. It doesn't even cover the projects he already still has going on in Denmark while he's here in New York. So after that long introduction, thank you, Klaus, for taking the time out of your busy day trying to get your next project open to join me on the phone.
2: <laughs> thank you. I'm breathless. Um,
1: so I am. I'm very excited to have you on the show. I know that earlier this week you did uh, an episode of The Morning After here on Heritage Radio, and I would encourage everyone who's listening to also listen to that show. Um, I have listened to it. I'm going to try and make this one a little bit different. I'm sure we'll have some overlap in topics, um, but I'm going to try and try and do things a little bit differently. Um, so. After that sort of a lengthy introduction, um, Klaus, I would I'd really like to start at the beginning, and hear about your childhood um, and how that shaped your relationship to food.
2: You know, I I, um, I grew up in in what is considered the darkest period of ancient history was the post Second World War era, where nobody knew anything about one uh, uh, kind of um the health aspects to food, organic, uh, agriculture or any issues related with industrial farming. Uh, it was a period where everybody just wanted to <clears throat> everybody just wanted to buy some cheap food and, and my, my mother just wanted to get over in a hurry, so we basically bought frozen vegetables from Eastern Europe and uh, frozen meat and everything was packed in mass in, 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 in uh, dried breadcrumbs and deep-fried in, in margarine packed with trans fatty acids. And I believe my mother and everything spent 10 to 15 minutes on cooking and we spent some 10 minutes on, on, on eating the meal almost uh, in, in, in silence. And, um, hmm. and I didn't know anything. I didn't know that food could be so much, uh, anything else uh, when I was 19 years old.
1: So, I mean, I, I think that a lot of people would imagine, and certainly there are many, many chefs and people sort of who've risen to the, to the heights that you have in the industry, who you know have great stories about cooking with grandmother and living on a farm and all of these things. So having, having grown up in, in what you now regard as sort of a, a dark and boring food household, um, how, what opened your eyes to this, to what food can be and what food can create in eating together and talking and enjoying?
2: So for me it was one year spent in France. I, as I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I, I went to Paris. I found an opportunity to work as an au pair with a dentist in the 17th arrondissement. Uh, and um, with him, I stuck myself probably on a toothpick, on on a, on a sort of a metal instrument that he would be working with in, in the mouth of his patient. And um, I got hepatitis. Hmm. And that brought me. That brought me on a recreational stay in uh, in the heart of uh, Gascony, in Asia, the capital of the global capital of Pool. Yeah. and the, the the land of the Musketeers. And yes. um, the, the the coincidence was that the family that had uh, so generously offered me to to come to them, if at any point of time I wanted to see somewhere else in Paris, they could not have children, and they always wanted to have a son. Hmm. And on my side, my 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 parents had. Uh, divorced when I was 14 literally to the sound of the microwave oven and um, and I needed kind of, I, I kind of had a sort of clear for connecting to, to father figures so, so in between us, he and Elizabeth and myself, we we were a phenomenal match and uh, I felt deeply in love with them and uh, and with their way of living and um, when I but finally put that disease behind me and and, and was able to walk and, and work again. I just stayed in Asia and worked with him who was one of the best pastry chefs and and, and bakers of his generation hmm. and and his this whole little shop was almost like like your shop Harry it was kind of a a, a time target but but even even though him it was a time target time target reflecting the golden age of French astronomy huh. and uh, and I was very fortunate to be able to live that in in the early 1980s, and it, it totally changed my, my, my view on food, on cooking, on love, and uh, I thought that something, let me see, I thought that something horrible was going on in, in Denmark that was supposed to represent uh, a higher level of civilization.
1: Sure. I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, certainly in that in that post-war era, I mean, we talk about, you know, Danish modern furniture as an example of design and sort of, you know, there's there's a lot of art and things that have come out of that. And we, we regard that as being very highly evolved. I mean, I feel like that, you know, you can you can walk around New York and you can see shops that are full of Danish modern furniture. I have some in my apartment. I really like it. I think it's incredibly beautiful. It's functional. Um, it's well constructed. And it sort of feels like the very top of, a, of that um you know of, of that uh, that mode of expression um, and so it's interesting to hear that food was not sort of matched by that uh, or was not matching to that at
2: the time i think it has to do with the fact that we uh, that we were all growing up in some sort of Protestant, uh context mm. um so i mean my my, my my mother and my father uh and definitely my well maybe not my mother actually but my my grandmother and my grandfather they were growing up um, and being taught by doctors and priests that that deliciousness was a sin right in line with uh theft and excessive dancing abuse of alcohol and, and masturbation, stuff like that so so we were taught to, to to enjoy the smell and the flavor of food was uh, something that belonged to the world of animals and uh and nothing so basically if you wanted to live a long and healthy life on earth um, and avoid going to hell in the end, we should eat great food. We should just eat something functional, rational, effective, efficient, terrorist, and not enjoy the meal at all.
1: sure, because the goal right was to enjoy it in heaven after after you were dead, so
2: <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> that 's
1: that 's when your enjoyment would somehow come. Um, so, so after, after that time spent in France and sort of opening up your mind and your heart and, and, and your, your mind, and I mean, your, your, your senses to, to food, um, upon returning to Copenhagen, um, did you find, you know, were you able to find other people? I mean, I assume you were able to find other people who, who felt the same way about food and that, you know, some, something was missing in Denmark.
2: I felt almost alone hmm. at the time, um, because all Danish chefs would be cooking, or everybody would be cooking in the name of Danish food, whatever that was, would be just cheating on the way and using uh, semi-industrial products. And, and there was actually nothing at that time that had to do with our roots that represented anything great. The only great food that you could find in Denmark in the in the, in the 80s was uh, very little snobbish, fine dining French food cooked up by French chefs who wanted to live in Denmark and they would be importing and breast chicken and, uh, you know, every, every, every ingredient from France. Um, so I almost felt, uh, I felt a little bit alone, because for me it was not a matter of, of serving extremely luxurious meals to rich people. It was basically, that for me, cooking was a matter of love. I, I, I wanted other people to feel what I felt when I suddenly was invited into the French food culture. It was on the one hand about the flavor of a phenomenal bread, an outstanding Romeo cheese, or a great boeuf bourguignon. But it was also a matter of connecting to people, spending time together, being present, and uh, and sharing a wonderful uh, moment. And I felt literally that at that time, I was almost the only person in the country um, walking... um, that uh, that idea and and maybe that was why pretty early in my life without at all being a professional chef i was i'm also that i'm also that bacon chef Uh, i I suddenly found myself uh, you know doing national cooking shows on on national television
1: yeah so can you tell me how how is it different now i mean i know that you're you're going back to copenhagen um at the end of july um you know for for a visit i assume so you know Fast forward to 2016. When you go back, what will you find there in terms of food? What you know? What have you worked to create, and obviously other people have followed, followed and worked with you and worked in your footsteps.
2: Yes, I mean what, what, what has happened ever since, um, and I love this. It's due to my personal efforts. Is that, uh, that the Copenhagen food scene and our culture as such, in, in, in spite of it, uh, its its very limited amount of people. We only five million inhabitants in Denmark. Uh, Denmark and, and, and notably, uh, Copenhagen has gone into one of the most uh, vibrant uh, food cities in the world. You would have, you know, almost as many restaurants open every week as in New York. And you would have uh, a number of very ambitious bakeries that have been opening, small butcher shops, uh, micro dairies, micro distilleries micro brewers, and uh, a wonderful um, outdoor team with a lot of... Uh, raised stuff being consumed on on um, the terraces of our small little uh, small capital. So a lot has happened in those uh, in those 30 years, and in particular in the last 15 years.
1: It sounds it sounds amazing. Um, you know, I would love I would love someday to visit it. It certainly you know, what you describe it as being like now, I think um, I think people don't understand that it hasn't just always been that way. I think that, uh, at least in you know, having grown up here in the States, you know, I went to France when I was 16 in the in the early 90s, and remember very clearly feeling sort of a world opened up to food in a similar way that, that you describe of having great cheese and having great bread that wasn't really available in the U.S., you know, except in very specific places at the time. But I think that our sense, um, you know, being the sort of, you know, uh, um, myopic Americans that we are is to think that all of Europe was like that and that you know but really you know we've been we've been so well connected to places like France and Italy who I think have had these these food traditions that have lasted through and, and sort of opened people's eyes to food but I think we're very much like oh well it's just part of Europe it's all kind of the same over there so it's it's interesting to hear and exciting to know that it is you know that it also is progressing quickly in places like Copenhagen. i I wanted to to uh to then talk a little bit about the um, the vast number of businesses that you opened to sort of help that along so um, you know if people check out if if people look you up online they they f- will find your site um, in danish that that has you know you have uh aside from founding NOma you have uh, a bakery a vinegar factory, a line of foods, a cafe a coffee roaster I know I'm forgetting some.
2: An old chef, uh, an old hotel.
1: Charcuterie.
2: Uh, The charcuterie production, a little salmon smoking festivity, but uh, it's all pretty small.
1: Sure. I mean, I I guess when when we hear those things, we think of them as being large. But I think the the thing that is amazing to me is that any one of those things would be something that someone would sort of dedicate their life to, to, to having a bakery. Or to having a restaurant, or to having a cafe, or to having a vinegar factory, and having an orchard, and you have managed to do all of these things, both in Copenhagen and now you've moved to New York to do a similarly large, long list of things. Um, I find that I find that very impressive, um, and I'd want to.
2: Maybe, 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 maybe just the cheese.
1: <laughs> I think it's. I think we and, talked about this I'm, when we first met. I, it,
2: I'm not sure it's single hair. I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not sure it's only good. I mean. The main reason, I'm sure that, that if I, I mean, I'm, I'm very admirable for that baker or that butcher or that vinegar maker that you talk about, that that spent his or her entire life, full of integrity, dedicating all their thoughts, all their attention, all their energy to that one single project, and, and that reflects all of them. I, you know, I kind of envy that, but, um, so so I'm not sure that it's, it's, it's black and white and um, or what I'm doing is something magical, but... Um, the reason why it ended up like that in Denmark is that my aim was not to grow the, the biggest bakery or the most profitable uh, vinegar factory or the most uh, efficient cafe. My idea was always to to kind of release unreleased potentials in different categories in order to engage other people in coming into that field and getting the best out of it. But I never saw myself as, as some... Uh, the builder of an empire, but more like an enzyme that through this kind of approach and my, my specific sense for creating demand when well, there was no demand for quality. By, by, by opening up the opportunities and, and, and starting a conversation that would then hit the media about the, the, the potentials for vinegar or the potential for bread, relative to where we came from, that, 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 that my idea was to fertilize the daily food culture that kind of energy not to grow a big company so uh, this was a specific reason why i in denmark
1: and it, i mean and, and that's a it's a great distinction I, I really appreciate your view um and i think it's really important that that it is not that you set out to have this sort of giant company or to have do all of these things and to conquer other companies but really to serve a need in a community that you identified and through serving that need it has become successful because in fact clearly you were correct, that there was an interest in having better bread or an interest in having vinegar or an interest in having responsibly sourced food. And that is, what you, that, that is where you based it from. Um, I think that, that that's a very important distinction. I think that what we're seeing now sort of generally in food is that some people choose that way and some people choose the way of, you know, the startup where, you know, let's make this thing and let's make it big and let's get a bunch of money behind it and then we'll sell it. And I think those are very different. Uh, thank you. Uh, we're going to take a we're going to take a short break um, and hear from one of our sponsors, and then when we come back, actually, I want to shift our focus to to now to the to the current projects you have coming up in New York.
2: Yeah, perfect.
1: Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and today I'm speaking with Klaus Meyer, um, who, before the break, we were talking about um, sort of a lot of things in Copenhagen and all of the different businesses that he is involved in and all the different things he has done. And and, uh, I just wanted to sort of say um, both to the audience and and to you, Klaus, that I, I sometimes... I feel sometimes similarly to that that when I have an idea or I see something that I could be doing that serves a need within the within the community or within a related business I often think I should just go for it and I should just do it and um, it's something that my wife calls the curse of the capable.
2: Yeah, they reiterate
1: with me when we're that. Yeah. Um So I I want to talk a little bit now about New York. Um, So you still have your your businesses and your partners in Copenhagen, but last year you moved with your three three daughters, two dogs, and your wife here to New York City. Um, And... I wanted to talk a little bit about about that move and sort of how that came about. I mean, I, I've thought I have two children and, and and my wife and my dog, and you know, have sort of fantasized about if we lived somewhere else or if we changed our, you know, or if we went somewhere else to do some some sort of project. Um, was everybody in the family on board with the move to New York?
2: Yeah, basically, my 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 three daughters uh, made the decision because <laughs> I, I, I mean, I wasn't born in Denmark. I had sure. to do there, but. Uh, it was also tempting to try to come to America. And I mean, New York is for all Europeans, and in particular for Danish people, and, 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 and uh, very much for my wife and my daughters as uh, you know, the greatest city in the world. So when, when this opportunity suddenly uh, arose, it... Um, I, I, was, I, kinda, I, I, tried, I wanted to try to be open towards it. But I, I must say, though, in this particular case, it was not a matter of me wanting to save America or, or, or help New York. I didn't come in this particular case. I didn't make this move driven by a, a sort of a food related community purpose. I was curious. I was excited. And I think it could be interesting also on the private level to, um, to see what it would look like if you started a life together as a family and, all, and everyone was kind of a little bit part of the big project. Yeah. And um, of course, I was excited by the idea of see if I could make it in New York. we <laughs> need to break it here, and we' going to see where I am um I,
1: And I think that it you know it represents an interesting opportunity. One of the reasons I've thought about living other places, of course, is the opportunity to have my children understand somewhere else than where they have grown up, and I think for for me that's a that would be a big driving force to look at trying to move somewhere. Absolutely. So you have opened your restaurant now. It is open in, in the former men's smoking room when we used to have that in, 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 inside in New York City, right in Grand Central. Um, and the Great Northern Food Hall is set to open next week. Is that right?
2: Yeah, we have a we have a very soft uh, little opening going on this week to train all the functions and uh, and see what kind of effort it takes to keep the pavilions open. And, and otherwise, it, it opens for real on on Monday.
1: That's great. I mean I I love Grand Central Station. It is I, and I think that it's a it's one of my favorite places in New York because it is a space that is so grand and amazing and is a wonderful place to visit. Um, but it also is a place that people i mean I used to go through there every day as a commuter as well and it it occupies i think both of those things it has the oyster bar downstairs i mean i I, I hope that they're good neighbors i i couldn't imagine a better place to sort of be near um, and you know I know that they I hope that you guys are going to do something great when the when the uh, when the uh, the sardines come in right that's the the big the big thing I know they have a big festival every year right to, to sort of celebrate that um, and Grand Central, to me, represents a place where you can go and you can have lunch at the counter there. And now, obviously, have an opportunity to eat at at your restaurants. But I wanted to ask if you—I assume you've spent a lot of time there in the middle of the night with the opening of the restaurant. And I just wanted to— you know, to, to hope that you've gotten to do that because I used to do a lot of work in, um, in Grand Central when I had in a previous career and there's nothing like, and I hope, you've, I hope you've been able to do this or you will be able to do this, there's nothing like laying down in the middle of the floor next to the clock when that room is completely empty.
2: <laughs> I' actually tried.
1: I encourage you to do it. Um, I used to do work in there and we'd be in there overnight and we'd be in there after the after Grand Central was closed. And laying down in the middle of that floor with nobody in it is a really incredible experience. so I, I hope you'll hope you get to do that.
2: Why, why, why,
1: why did you spend time there? The, the I used to do um, I used to do event lighting, and so whenever they would put up the fancy lights that would shine on the ceiling and do patterns and things, and when there would be events in Vanderbilt Hall, um, I spent many many nights setting up lighting because we would always sort of load in all the equipment um, around nine or ten p.m. and then work overnight and do all of our work when the when the station was essentially closed.
2: Okay, I, I will try not.
1: Um, so that you know, I definitely, I definitely encourage that. Um, and you, alongside of this, um, you are you're opening a space in Queens to serve as a commissary. But I, I want to touch on, and I know you talked a little bit about it um, on the morning after earlier in the week. But I want to touch on the project that you're doing in Brownsville because I think that that to me represents something that is so important and, and is a very visionary piece of what you're doing and I think that they're all connected I think that you know if we're going to look at the project of having a fine dining restaurant and having a food hall to bring danish and scandinavian food sort of into the heart of new york city um, I really I love the idea of what you're doing there to open a cooking school and a sit down restaurant in a neighborhood that has none that has no sit down restaurants at all so can you describe sort of that project and how that came abar- came about as part of um, opening mm, the Great Northern Food Hall? Yeah.
2: Um, so what was the last bit you said? Um, well, uh, I, can, can
1: you just talk a little bit about how the project in Brownsville came to be part of the other things you were doing here in New York?
2: Yeah, so I, I, I mean, of course it's part of it for me, but but uh, I don't necessarily want it to be part of the same thing for for the commuter. Who, I mean, the commuter who goes to the Great Northern Food Hall and gets a cup of coffee or a pastry or... Uh, uh, and open page sandwich which he doesn't necessarily need to be sort of uh, um, entertained about what's going on in Brownsville, but, but uh, the reason why I ended up doing something in Brownsville was that I, exactly as we described before, I felt that uh, I had an obligation to, to do it when I heard about that community and the way it, it struggled. And um, also because I, I have a chance virtually to succeed in, in, in making it happen. And as nobody else was doing anything out there, I said, then, then maybe I should try to do something. And, and the reason why I, I, I made the decision to do was that I met a, a young man, uh, Lucas Stenson, uh, in, in, um, in Bedside, in front of Scratch Bread Bakery, that I visited with my family, and he started talking to me, because he thought I was a stranger. And then we ended up talking for five, ten minutes, when we were both waiting for a portion of, of wonderful, rich, from the, the headmaker and all of, of the badly clothed, with Matthew children. Yeah, Matt, and, Matt and, used and, uh, to make the that, amazing that stuff. quiz, like I said, it was worth waiting for. It yeah. was so good that I brought Matthew to Denmark for the Apple Cloud Festival the year after, just <laughs> to make that grid for the, for the festival um, participants. But Lucas, Lucas and I started talking to each other, and I shared with him my dream to do something explicit for people I would have no connection to it. And then he mentioned Brownsville. He had been working for the New York City's um, Committee of Human Rights for a year and a half and studying gentrification. And and he just uh, had identified that so many things were so wrong and society had basically left down Brownsville. Um, and, um, And then I asked myself, what kind of organization would be the proper structure? For doing something in Brownsville, and Lucas and I had uh, a number of conversations. about we didn't know each other, but he eventually ended up being my first employee in in, in, in New York. And, and we have had, you know, for two years, we've been discussing how to approach this correctly. And and um, you can see it as we being, um, we are bringing, we're trying to bring the resources to Brownsville that 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 Brownsville needs to uh, to kind of take itself. Out of poverty. Out of, out of, out of uh, poverty. Mm. The idea is that we don't come there. We don't solve the problems. We don't bring food. We don't uh, cook our recipes. We we, we come with our knowledge, some seed money, uh, and then we try to get this um, bakery and restaurant and food school out and running with the aim not just to create wonderful meals for Brazilians meals they can afford, and uh, and to give. Uh, 60 students per year a diploma and a high way to this industry but also to impact the lives of people outside the, the walls of our little uh, restaurant.
1: Um, I, it, it sounds incredible. So so that project is is that restaurant open now or not yet?
2: Well, no, right now we are we are starting the build out of a 5,000 5, uh, square feet space on Selma Avenue uh, and in the meanwhile we trained the first cohort of students in a church down the street hmm. that we have rented
1: um, i mean it's not, it, it's an it's an incredible project um, i think the i think the, there's a there's a real lesson in there um, for for just about everybody i think that we should all talk to each other more while we're standing in line to buy delicious grits or (laughs) see a movie or or sit next to someone on a plane because you never know um what is going to what is going to come out of that and i think that uh you know the the other piece of it for me is that i think it's it's important to um to follow you know to follow what you believe and you know i think this is a, a prime example of you know you had already done a lot of things in Copenhagen, and you know, with the belief of serving people, and you know, felt like that was very important. And now this is a project that's continuing here. And uh, you know, as an, as a New Yorker, I thank you. I think it's a I think it's a great project, and I can't wait to see I can't wait to see it when it opens and to to visit and to and to come and come and check it out because it's certainly you know Brownsville is a you know it, it is a, it is well known i think um, to a certain extent by new yorkers as a terrible neighborhood and not a place that anybody would go i mean there's lots of you know theoretically bad neighborhoods now Bed-Stuy was one of them when i was growing up that you would never go to that have been sort of reclaimed or reinvented and people have opened businesses there that have gotten acclaim and gotten people to go there and visit restaurants and and see these businesses and i think that you know brownsville still is a place that doesn't have that i don't think there's you know there's probably almost nowhere in brownsville that you could find written about in a food magazine that somebody would go visit.
2: Oh, there's, there's no sit-down restaurant. There's uh, there's absolutely nothing. Uh, a friend of mine, Robert Locasio, though, has just recently also has an um, sort of incubator project uh, helped uh, a couple of young women open open uh, a cafe out there. Hmm. Um, so maybe time has come from down to. And I want and I need to tell you that the paradox is that. I have met some of the most wonderful, warm, um, embracing, friendly people in my entire life in Dongfell. Sure. And, and our, our students that we work with, they are beyond fantastic. And mm-hmm. they are so dedicated to what we are doing. And um, it is the biggest reward in my life to be kind of allowed and or invited uh, into that community and do my best to be an enzyme that will help them get the best out of their lives I'm, I'm I'm very I'm beyond the grateful for
1: it well um, I you know I, like I said I can't wait to uh, I can't wait to see it when it opens we're we're just about out of time um, I, I thank you Klaus so much for taking time out of the week before opening a restaurant to to make some time to speak with me um, is there anything are there any other projects that we miss anything that you wanted to make sure uh, you got to mention on the show
2: well, we opened the little, we open, I mean, we basically said it, but uh, two things, though. The, the, the food in it'll be, we are exploring the, the potential of the African-American diet. We're basically sharing with these youngsters the idea that, that, we, that this, the way they eat today and have been eating in their family since they grew up, is not necessarily how their grandmas would have been eating 100 years ago. Hmm. So, we, so we, we're digging deep into that food culture and exploring how how else Kalilu or Oxtails could look like these days. Um, and yeah. the, the other thing I just wanted to say now that you give me the opportunity to say this that we are we open this little boutique, this little artisanal bakery that we've worked on for the last seven months in on Greek Avenue in Williamsburg in the middle of July.
1: Ah. Great, you're gonna be my neighbor, I can't wait.
2: Fantastic and I, I will buy some of your wonderful sausages. <laughs>
1: Um it sounds like i just just to sort of to say it uh that the the project in Brownsville and sort of approaching food in a way of saying that you know the people are not eating the way that their grandparents would have eaten, it sounds to me like that matches um fairly closely with your personal experience you could say so. So, um, well, I, uh, I thank you very much, Klaus, for, for joining me today on, uh, on Feast Your Years. And uh, everybody should definitely check out, uh, even if you only get to check out one of the many, many things Klaus is doing, I'm sure you'll be very, very pleased. Um, and, uh, and Klaus, I hope to see you soon. Um, I'm excited you know, to, to continue to, to know you and to, to discuss ideas, and hopefully we'll work together uh, in the future. I would love that. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears. And a big thank you to Kristen Baylor, my producer here, and David Tadashore who engineers the show every Wednesday. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. And you can follow me on social media, at TheFoodBaller. Talk to you next week.